Howdy, folks. Thanks for tuning in to another edition of TGC Midweek. Jacob and Michael back with you on the pod after a week off. Michael, what's going on, man? Oh, not a whole lot. Happy to be back. Yeah. How was your trek northward across the country? It was great. Uh, A great chance to drive uh, across some of the country that we haven't had a chance to see before. For instance, we visited Big Bend National Mm. Park. To my shame, after living in South Texas for 11 years now, we've never been. It's beautiful landscape. Hard to believe that you're in the state of Texas when you're visiting. We also had the opportunity to swing through the Grand Canyon National Park. And then we also saw the Arches National Park in southern Utah. All on the way to visit my brother and his wife uh-huh. and my nephew who live in Salt Lake City. Nice. Did so, you get to spend any time at the Grand Canyon or you were kind of just in and out? Well, we spent about two hours there. Okay. So a lot of our trip was just simply seeing the sights through the windows of our car. Yeah. So we spent four nights road tripping to Salt Lake City and looking out the window most of the time. Mm-hmm. But we did stop like at Big Bend and in Grand Canyon and got out and hiked for maybe 30 minutes. Yeah. But that was about it. We Man. had to keep moving. Because we- the thing is, you didn't want to get caught with the sun down uh-huh. and have to drive hours without seeing the sights that you want to see. Oh, yeah. I didn't, and so I one night we actually that. were running late and we drove a few hours after the sun had set. And we were probably driving through some beautiful landscape. Uh-huh. And Rachel was really upset because <laughs> she didn't plan the trip. Uh-huh. To the way that she wanted it to be, where we were looking at at you know things outside our windows or we driving. Y'all didn't get any ice or snow or anything that made it difficult. No, that was That's that was good. really nice too. Yeah. My brother said that Salt Lake City it's the driest uh, it's ever been in the winter, so really? they haven't had much snow at all. Yeah, man, we went to the Grand Canyon a couple of years ago, and me and my wife and my brother and my sister hiked down and across to the river Ooh, nice. and turned around and went back up in wow. one day. And that, one day? That was brutal. Yeah. They so, tell you not to do that, I think. Well, they tell you not to like try to go all the way across. We okay. went down into like the river overlook. Uh, so like we could look look down at the river and kind of like there it is, but we, we you didn't go like, all the way to the bottom we like of the canyon. At the, we were like at the bottom of a canyon, but it's kind of like an overlook, and then it drops down a little bit more. Okay. So I don't know. It's, it's like a false bottom of the canyon, yeah. if you will. Um, but we turn around and go back up, and uh, it's it's probably like a mile or two from the end of this little overlook to the wall of the canyon where you start going vertical. <laughs> and I, I think I got like a sixth of the way up, and it was just like left quadricep, okay. white, right hamstring just decided – we're done. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm sucking on beef jerky and uh, <laughs> anything that's salty, you know. They tell you to carve out two to three times what it took to go down to go up. Oh, it was when we were at the top, it was like every step, it was just my, my legs were. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not like an athlete or anything, but I'm not the in the worst shape. Yeah. And it was, it oh, was yeah. rough. Well, it's a little nerve wracking to have kids too because the yeah. edge, it, it drops pretty yeah. good. And you don't want your kids getting too close to the edge because there could be uh, a, a tragic accident. Uh, but also I noticed that um, hikers are supposed to yield to the donkeys. Yes, that's right. And I don't know if you saw any donkeys oh, yeah. going up and yeah. down, but they have a mules. stable. Oh, mules. Yeah. They have a stable of mules uh, there at the park that we drove by. And we saw mules going up and down. We saw someone <laughs> getting life flighted from the camp oh, at the no. bottom. <laughs> Uh, when we were going back up, there was this British family and their boys were like trying to scale the wall while I'm sucking wind. Uh, 
there was a, as we were going back up, there was a Mennonite family going down uh, for an overnight camping trip. And I don't know if you ever ate like the cheap ice cream that came in like the big clear buckets. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. They just had that full of like potato salad and coleslaw <laughs> carried in sleeping bags with their beards and no mustaches. And, oh. and I don't know if I can tell this story on this podcast, but I'm going to tell it anyway. Um, we, as we were going down, every couple of miles, there would be a rest stop. And we were hydrating hard, so we would stop and use the rest the rest stop. And there were these two guys, and they were hiking in like cargo shorts and flip flops. And it was December, so it was kind of chilly. Uh-huh. And um, th- we would they we'd be at the rest stop, and then they come and we'd start going back down, and they'd fly past us, and then we'd pass them at their next rest stop, <laughs> and then they'd fly past us. I'm like, what are these guys? Do-? I didn't know where they were from. They were speaking Spanish and. Um, but in like, even I could tell that they had an accent. So it wasn't like, you know, the kind of Spanish you hear around here. And I was like, where are these guys from? Like, how are they just flying past us? And then at one of these rest stops, this guy opens something, pours a white powder into his hand and just oh, no. sniffs it all up. And I was like, oh, that's how they're going so fast. Ooh, goodness <laughs> gracious. I'm surprised they didn't get life flighted out of there. Oh man. Yeah. They were, uh. They they had the magic ticket there. Wow, so. <laughs> the the coolest city we saw though. I don't know if you visited uh, this place in Arizona, Sedona. Oh yeah, yeah, we, beautiful. It was fun. It felt like a uh, a smaller, more funky, even more wealthy Austin, Texas. Yeah. to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it was just really really beautiful landscape wise, and the small town feel of it all was really awesome. Yeah, we had, we had a fun time when we were there too. Well, gee, boost and bummer, man. Give the people what they want. Well, I will certainly try. Um, I tend to like to reverse them just so we go into mm-hmm. the, the pod with the content on the on the on the boost the boost side. So we'll start off with the bummer side, and this probably is not a shock to most of us in San Antonio, um, and it has to do with our beloved Spurs. So I don't know if you guys have uh, noticed. Well, I guess a little context. I personally have not had cable or satellite TV since like 2012. And so one of the really cool things about the last couple of years is seeing the streaming services come online like YouTube TV or Hulu Live or uh, Sling TV, um, who are basically giving you broadcast television over the internet. Well, it turns out that Fox Sports Southwest that we all know and love here who carries the Spurs. And so if you're at YouTube uh, TV or Hulu live last year, you were gone to the Fox sports Southwest channel on your directory and you could watch your Spurs games, even though know, that they were in Florida or wherever they were doing the, uh, during the COVID uh, finishing up that s- season there. Well, it turns out that Fox sports Southwest uh, used to be owned by, I think Disney. And they sold it to a media conglomerate. That media conglomerate has failed to strike contracts with YouTube TV, Hulu Live, and all the streaming services. So if you are into the streaming side of things, um, you're going old school. Uh, You're AM 1200. And so you're listening to the games because they're not on television um, through any of the streaming services anymore. And so that's a a little bit of a bummer. Um, I, I... I dabble, I go free month here, maybe a month there with the streaming services, but um, none of them have the Spurs anymore. 
because mm-hmm. they're not carrying Fox Sports Southwest. And that just goes with all the regional yeah. Fox Sports stations. So I know your beloved stars. That's, I, yeah, because I was like, why haven't I seen a stars game so far? Because I think they're undefeated still this season. And uh, yeah, it's because I never see it on TV because it's not on TV. Because I, I have YouTube TV. There you go. And there you go. So that's, that's the. <laughs> <laughs> and it's South Texas. Oh, it's ching. hockey. Um, no, I won't. I won't give you flack about hockey if you don't give me flack about soccer. Yeah, so there th- there, there's the deal we yeah. sh- we struck the the peace accord we have here at, at TGC midweek. Uh, the boost. This is going to be seem rather pedestrian to you guys, and I and so I'm going to preface it. It has to do with paper towels. Mm. I always thought all the paper towels were the same. Recently, I've come to appreciate the finer things in life, such as bounty paper towels. They're different. They feel the tactile feel of the paper towel when it gets wet, turns into almost a cloth. And it is utterly different than any other paper towel I've had. Now, there may be other ones in that realm of the upper echelon of paper towels, but uh, it was something that I bumped into recently that I'm like, I can't go back. I love the feel of this paper towel when it gets wet and I can clean and feel like it's not going to rip apart. Um, I know what you're thinking. No Bounty is not a sponsor of this podcast. Uh, But if you're looking for a fine paper towel, I'm going to boost and promote Bounty to you. It just feels different in your hand when it gets wet. Uh, It stays together. You can just go at it almost like it is like an old T-shirt that you're using to clean. Uh, and that's something that I had not felt before in a paper towel. So mm. Mm. there you go, folks. You got your money's worth. Very good. Very good. Use code TGC20 uh, at checkout and you'll get 20% off your next uh, order of bounty paper towels. So um, that's a joke. Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> if you do, it won't work. Uh, Michael. Uh, so we've been going over our, our Bible overview series for a long time now. Been in the New Testament for a little while. Uh, went through the Gospels recently. And um, got a question from one of our listeners about one of these events that appears in several of the gospel accounts. This one is about uh, has to do with with a woman anointing Jesus with oil or with ointment. It's re- there is a story to this effect that's recounted in all four of the gospels with some minor differences. So Matthew and Mark specify that it's at the house of a man named Simon the leper, but Luke says it's at the house of a Pharisee who Jesus in his dialogue refers to as Simon. Um, But in this case, the woman anoints his feet, whereas in Matthew and Mark, the woman anoints his head. In John 11, there's also a similar story, but this is surrounding the... um, This has to do with Mary and, and Martha, and Mary anoints his feet with ointment, um, there's no mention, I, I think, in this case of of anyone named Simon, but the events are so similar. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is, uh, um, is it synecdoche when you use one part to talk about the whole? We're going to do that. So it, there's a, a variety of events that might happen in, in multiple gospel accounts that happen from different perspectives. So there's some differences. In this particular case, what should we make of it? Yeah, I think in this particular case, what you have um, is the same story recounted in Matthew, Mark, and John, and a different story altogether recounted for us in the book of Luke. 
And so I know that there's a little bit of um, debate on whether or not this is the same story told by all four gospel accounts. But in Matthew, Mark, and John, you've got uh, this event happening at the end of Christ's life. You've got Jesus coming into the town of Bethany and all three accounts in Matthew, Mark, and John recount that he's in Bethany. Uh, they all say that he's, uh, or two of them say that he's at the house of Simon the leper, um, and uh, and the woman comes and anoints uh, Christ's uh, head in Matthew and Mark, but his feet in John. Uh, and so that's the one discrepancy you have between those three accounts. And I think that you could make that fit by saying, well, you know, she anointed his head, the oil dripped to his feet. She washed his feet yeah. with her hair. Or just based on where you were sitting at the table, you may you have, seen have seen a, the feet yeah. or his head. And, um, and in Luke, you get an account that happened a lot earlier in the life of Christ. Uh, this woman was a sinful woman from the city. Uh, and it just happens to be that Jesus is at the home of a Pharisee that's named Simon. Nowhere in Luke chapter 7 is this Simon referred to as a leper. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's how you understand this story. Matthew, Mark, and John are recounting the same event just before Christ's death where Mary of Bethany, Martha's sister, Lazarus's sister, is anointing Jesus for his burial. And in Luke chapter 7, you get no sense that Christ is near Bethany, no sense that he's near the end of his ministry. It just happens to be at the house of a Pharisee and a sinful woman comes in and anoints his feet with oil, which would have been a very common thing to do Mm -hmm. in that day. Mm -hmm. And so it makes sense that you would see this happen more than once in the Gospels from a few different people. Simon, also a fairly common first name. I would imagine so. At least in that day and age, I think. I You've got a number of Simons in the four short Gospels. Right. So you would make yeah. the case that Simon was a fairly common name. Sure. Well, very good. Uh, folks, if you've got questions like this, we always love to uh, to hear what you're thinking about and, and try to take a stab and, and respond to some of these, um, especially when it's uh, sort of on topic with some of the things that we're, we're going through here. So um, thank you for sending in that question. Hope to get more in coming weeks. Now, Michael, last week we started getting into the epistles, specifically Paul's epistles, and spent some time in the book of Romans. This week, we'll get into the letter to the Corinthians. I think we might try to cover first and second today. If we just get through first, I think that's probably fine. We'll pick up with second Corinthians next week. Um, a little bit of a different tone, I think, with these letters to the Corinthians versus Romans. Yeah, it is, because uh, with Romans, Paul was writing to a specific audience in Rome. He had never visited them before, and he was laying out what he believed uh, about the gospel. And here in Corinthians, uh, you get a different tone because Paul had a very deep relationship with this particular church. Uh, Paul spent a year and a half living in Corinth. Uh, You can read about him establishing the church in Corinth uh, in Acts chapter 18. That's an important thing to keep in mind. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can go back to the history in Acts and and read about uh, Paul's encounters with some of these churches. And in the book of 1 Corinthians uh, and 2 Corinthians, Paul is addressing very specific circumstances that would have been very unique to the Corinthian church itself. So Corinth was uh, a large city. Uh, It was a port city. Uh, Lots of different nationalities and cultures would have uh, converged upon this city. Um, It was a city that was uh, polytheistic in many ways. 
and Paul brought the gospel here. And um, there was a Hebrew um, population there that he initially uh, brought the message of Jesus to. But not only uh, Jews accepted this message, but also Hellenized Greeks um, would have accepted this message as well. And some of uh, the way that he talks to them, specifically in 1 Corinthians chapters 8 to 10, he's addressing some of the issues that they would have had between Jews and Greeks and what they were allowed to eat and what they didn't eat, specifically with foods sacrificed to idols. But all that to say, uh, as you read uh, 1 Corinthians, I mean, it's a problem church. Mm-hmm. It's a church that you wouldn't want to be a part of. They've got divisions among them. They're following different leaders. Uh, they've got sexual you know, um, sin running rampant in uh, their community. They're suing one another in courts of law. Uh, their worship services would have been a mess mm-hmm. where people would have talked over each other. Uh, they would have tried to get the last word over one another, um, and uh, and Paul knows this, and so he's writing to address a lot of these issues in the book of First Corinthians. Right. Whereas Romans was very very theological, Corinthians is it, it's not untheological, but it's a little bit more ethical and sort of wisdom focused, and uh, in a way is kind of a rebuke of of this church. Um, like you mentioned, there's a bunch of these funny things going on. I, I thought it would be helpful to folks to kind of just walk through some of these because I feel like First Corinthians is one of those hot topic books. Like um, everyone's heard sermons out of First Corinthians that are on something that is uh, a little bit a little bit spicy, mm-hmm. and uh, there's there's some things in here that have caused uh, significant debate, even like sort of within reform circles and stuff. So I, I thought it would just be a good idea to kind of just uh, go down the list here and talk about some of the hot topics that Paul is addressing. The first, which you mentioned uh, early on, is the, the divisions that are happening within mm-hmm. the church. Unity becomes kind of a theme throughout the whole book, but he's specifically addressing some of these divisions. What are the things that are causing some of these divisions? Well, things that are causing these divisions are Paul planted this church. Like I said, you can read about in Acts chapter 18. He spent time there establishing this church, and then he left. And when he left, uh, other teachers would have come in. And so divisions were really centered around who these Corinthians were following. Some said, I follow Paul. Others said, I follow Apollos. Others said, I follow Peter. Mm -hmm. It was basically like, um, in some ways, how a Reformed tradition uh, folks will follow their favorite preacher. And if he says one thing that contradicts another preacher, well, doggone it, I follow... Jim, you know, in <laughs> Dallas, uh, who who teaches me the Bible. Uh, and so that's kind of what they're experiencing here is some division on who they're following. And Paul really calls them uh, to unity by saying, look, I planted, Apollos watered, it's God who gives the growth. And so all of these men that you're listening to are hopefully pointing you to the one uh, Lord and Savior that we all worship, Jesus Christ. And so let's get rid of these divisions uh, based on who you follow. The other thing that I, I think is interesting, too, that we didn't mention is at the very beginning, uh, it's it's remarkable that in verse 2, Paul calls these Christians saints or holy ones. <laughs> and I think that that is worthwhile dwelling on, uh, that despite all of their problems, 
if we were a part of this church, we probably wouldn't want to stay very long. We'd be looking for the next church in town. Unfortunately, there weren't any other churches in town to go to at that point if you wanted to follow Jesus. This is the only community or show around. Uh, and so they, they had to stick around if, if they wanted to be in, in a Christ community. Uh, but nonetheless, despite all their problems, uh, Paul still recognizes them as holy ones, as those that are set apart. And I think that's just encouraging implicitly to know that despite all the problems they had, they were still in Christ. They were still justified by faith. And Paul wanted to treat them and address them as such. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, yeah, divisions are the first problem he um, he tackles uh, here in uh, the book of First Corinthians. And Paul, you need to know. We tend to hold him on a pedestal or put him on a pedestal and hold him in high regard. Uh, he would have been poor. Uh, he was not a very good speaker. You get the sense that he had trouble with articulation. Um, people would have looked down on him for his poverty, for his lack of speaking skills, uh, for the fact that he suffered and experienced so much abuse for the gospel. And other apostles or teachers uh, were coming through town, so-called apostles or teachers were coming through town, and they looked a lot more impressive than Paul did. So it would have been very easy uh, for these Corinthians to despise Paul, to look down upon him, even though um, you know we know Paul now in hindsight. I mean, he wrote the yeah. majority of the New Testament. And uh, the Corinthians would have not have known Paul like we know Paul. Mm-hmm. Um, they would have been experiencing him firsthand. And you just get the sense he wasn't very impressive um, speaking-wise and, and maybe even in his physical appearance. Yeah. Um, some folks think that maybe Paul had an eye condition that made him hard to look at. Hmm. Um, and so, um, you know, that's reading between the lines a little bit. Um, what was the thorn in Paul's flesh that he speaks about? Um, and that's what some folks would say. Maybe it's an eye condition. Um, and, uh, there's other options there too, as well. But all that to say, uh, Paul just wasn't very impressive to this church Mm -hmm. and, uh, and it it caused a lot of strife between him and and this church in particular. Yeah. And and in this church particular, I, you can tell me if I'm wrong, but Corinth was a fairly wealthy city. And so, um, people in this group, there may have been some, well, we, we do get the sense later on that there's some folks with, Mm -hmm. uh, some amount of prestige, and perhaps wealth. And so they would have been looking for someone who is uh, maybe more impressive than Paul. And so yep. when someone comes along, even, you know, even someone like uh, Peter or Apollos, who uh, is, you know, in the same vein as Paul, but might have some more desirable qualities, they sort of align themselves with their favorite Christian celebrity, as it were. Paul kind of resolves some of this later on in, in chapter one by pointing to how, um, you know, whatever wisdom you might find, you know, the gospel is, is, uh, you know, you know, we're worshiping a crucified savior. And so it appears strange or odd, or Paul would even say foolish. And it's, it's, you know, the church is made up by all these people that we wouldn't like. Mm-hmm. Um, but he calls them saints of God. And so there's this sort of irony that gets built up that I think Paul is using to kind of, um, address and reconcile some of these divisions. And the point that he gets to is that all of this foolishness is, uh, he says, the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to those of us who are being saved, it's power of God. So this sort of irony kind of builds up into this theme of like, you know, what we consider to be foolish, God is really Mm -hmm. using for some greater glory. Yep. That's a great point. And you get the sense too, 
that Paul, instead of asserting his rights and presenting his resume, which he could have done, Mm -hmm. he doubles down on this kind of foolishness and weakness business and says, look, I'm happy to be foolish and weak because in my weakness, that's where I'm strong. He says that in 2 Corinthians Mm -hmm. um, and basically refuses to assert his rights, but embraces that foolishness like you mentioned. Yeah. And it's interesting. You say that you get the sense that there were some wealthy and some poor. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, when Paul talks about the Lord's Supper, he does talk about the wealthy come first. Mm -hmm. They want to be served first. And not only that, they're getting drunk at the Lord's Mm -hmm. Supper. Uh, I laugh because can you imagine getting drunk on the little thimble of wine that we drink at Trinity Grace? Obviously, they're doing something a little different yeah. uh, than what we're doing. They're actually having a meal together, yeah. uh, likely, uh, with goblets of wine, not necessarily little thimbles, as I call them. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yes, there would have been wealthy folks here. And in fact, Paul, one of the things that he wants to do is... Uh, collect an offering from the churches that he's planted, the Gentile churches, and take that offering back to the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem because they're suffering uh, a drought um, and a famine. And one of the things that he wants from the Corinthians, and he talks about it in 2 Corinthians, is for them to give generously to this offering that he's taking. And other churches have already contributed, but for some reason, the wealthy Corinthian church had not yet contributed to this offering Mm -hmm. that Paul wanted to take back. And so in 2 Corinthians, you hear him talking about cheerful giving uh, and uh, giving because, you know, Christ was rich. He became poor so that you uh, who are poor might become rich, using the gospel as a motivation for their generous giving to to his offering that he wants to take. Mm -hmm. So that kind of division that's sowed in that church is going to influence some of these other topics that Paul is going to address um, the next one that I've got on my list that I always see as kind of a hot topic in the book of 1 Corinthians is sexual immorality. You mentioned that this church had um, perhaps some peccadillos that Paul needed to address. He does this in 1 Corinthians 5. Sort of the exhibit A, I suppose, he mentions that there's a kind of sexual immorality that is not to- tolerated even among pagans for a man has his father's wife and you're arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? So um, pretty serious uh, stuff that Paul's addressing here. Yeah, it is. And, you know, the Corinthians might have had an antinomian streak in them Mm -hmm. thinking that, well, Jesus died to save us from our sins so we can do what we want. Uh, And he's going to continue to offer that forgiveness. They didn't realize that the forgiveness that Jesus offered, we were meant to respond uh, to that forgiveness out of gratitude and obedience. Uh, And they also might have had a Gnostic idea of what was required, meaning that the spiritual matters, but the body doesn't. Mm. And that's why in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, when Paul talks about fleeing sexual immorality, he talks about your body as the temple of the Holy Spirit. Uh, He's trying to get them to understand that not only their spirit and their soul matters to Christ, but he is also planning to restore their bodies as well. And he's in the midst of doing that. And because that's the case, you can't just worry about the soul or the spiritual aspect of life. The body and the physical aspect of life also matter as well. And so um, he spends some time in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 12 uh, through verse 20, talking about the body not being your own, mm-hmm. but God's. And uh, and so you get this confluence of antinomianism, you know, the law doesn't matter, we can do what we want, and also, also Gnosticism, which basically uh, says the spiritual matters, the physical doesn't. And Paul uh, 
comes and addresses both of those uh, misconceptions. Mm-hmm. In 1 Corinthians 5, where Paul is addressing some of the sexual immorality that's going on in the church, there's there's an interesting thing that I've heard some uh, – a lot of people say a lot of different things about, and I'd like to get your opinion. In 1 Corinthians 5, uh, at, towards the end of the chapter, he's still kind of re- referring to this incestuous man, and he says um, – well, for, firstly, about the incestuous man, he basically says, let this person be removed from you. Then mm-hmm. later on in chapter 5, he says, um, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? Yep. God judges those outside, purge, purge the evil person from among you. What does this tell us about um, how we should deal with uh, those within our own church bodies that are uh, engaged in um, sinful behavior and uh, church discipline and all yeah. that stuff? So you do get an instance here of early church discipline in, in the church in Corinth. Um, and I love the fact that he says, for what have I to do with judging outsiders? It's not, it's, it's, uh, not those uh, inside the church whom uh, you are to judge. God judges those outside. And so Paul is basically making, uh, I mean, this is an implicit argument for church membership. Yeah. Um, you've got to tie yourself to a body if you want to be held accountable by that body. If you're one who claims to follow Jesus, then it makes sense that you tie yourself to a Jesus community under the leadership and authority of a specific church so um, so that you can um, be held accountable for the good and the sake of your own soul. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so that's what church discipline is always for, is to reclaim uh, the person that has basically gone off the reservation. Um, to bring them back to relationship with Jesus. Um, and if they refuse, that's the thing. Church discipline is always, always, always meant to lead to repentance and forgiveness. Mm-hmm. That's the ultimate goal in every situation when it comes to what we'd call church discipline. It's to call um, the wayward sinner back to the fold, uh, back to the flock of Christ. But there's sometimes when that call is made and the person refuses to respond, at which point, for the sake of the peace and purity of the church, that person is cast out, um, treated as an unbeliever, um, no longer a part of the community. And, uh, and it's, you know, obviously, if they ever did repent, um, if they ever did seek forgiveness and want to follow Jesus again, they would be welcomed back mm-hmm. into the community. There's no strings attached. Um, but... There's an instance uh, where uh, church of disciplines does sometimes lead uh, to what we would call now excommunication, mm-hmm. um, uh, a departure from the community uh, altogether. And that's what you get uh, sincere purge the evil person from among you. Mm-hmm. And that's what Paul's talking about. Well, and it, it, this point that you made about uh, the whole goal of this entire process is reconciliation and repentance. Uh, in verse five here, he says, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. And so you get kind of a sense there that the whole goal is to, you know, give this person over to what he wants sure. so that he uh, recognizes the error of his ways and, yep. and comes back. And the physical ramifications of having to leave the community, not being able to participate in the sacraments is meant to have a spiritual effect too. Yeah. Um, and so uh, a lot of times there's different stages to church discipline, um, and you can see some of that outlined in Matthew chapter 18, where you go initially to the brother individually mm-hmm. uh, or sister. And if they refuse to hear or listen and repent, then you take a group of people, then you deliver the case to the church. 
and the church can withhold certain things like the sacraments mm-hmm. um, uh, for a season of time in order to to help the person uh, long for Jesus more. Um, and then eventually, if if that doesn't work, then like Paul says, and it, it's it's almost so harsh that it's hard to say. Yeah. Now, purge the evil person from among you. But like you said, you're doing it so that you might save them mm-hmm. um, eventually to Christ. What I like about this whole discussion that we've been having is that it's a very organized and systematic process and isn't something that's taken lightly. Uh, when I've heard folks speak out of out of 1 Corinthians 5 before, it's almost been from this sense of like, well, you and I are both Christians, so I can like admonish you privately or uh, berate you in front of your friends because you watched an R-rated movie or something sure. like that. Yeah, and so it's just been this really weird sort of thing, and um, just sort of like a, a very childlike reasoning that's come from this. And and I like how um, as we've been looking at it, we're following kind of this this process that Jesus lays out in in the Gospels, and that um, Paul is communicating to the Corinthian church here. Yeah, and I always put it this way in our new members class, and you might have heard me say this before, but I say you're committing yourself to uh, a body of believers, and in your sane moments, you're saying, "When I go insane, mm-hmm. you can come get me," and we all need that in our lives. Yeah, um, not to say now I say sa- sanity and insanity in terms of gospel sanity yeah. and obedience. Um, basically saying, if I ever go off the reservation and I do something that harms the church or is going to harm my soul, then I'm giving you permission as the church, and specifically, not just brothers and sisters generally as members, but the leadership of the mm-hmm. church um, to come and and uh, and get me yeah. and pull me back in. And Jesus really gives, even in Matthew chapter 18, the authority, um, the binding and the loosing, as he would call it, of church discipline to the church leaders. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, like you say, it's not like Bob pulls you aside and every R-rated movie you watch, he admonishes you. That would just get old and you'd probably not want to come back yes. to that church that Bob's a part of. <laughs> um, it's a lot more uh, official, so to speak, yeah. I guess, uh, in the way that we read about church discipline in the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's why electing and um, and submitting to your church leaders is so important. Paul talks about that a lot in the pastoral epistles. These are men that are keeping watch over your soul. Uh, give them reason to do it joyfully, mm-hmm. is, is what he says in um, 1 Timothy. Right. Or Peter, one of the two. Um, the next sort of uh, fun topic to talk about that, that tends to come up anytime you're studying 1 Corinthians is marriage. In 1 Corinthians 7, Paul spends some time talking about uh, talking about marriage, and the interesting thing is he he basically says, "I wish you could all be single." <laughs> In a manner of speaking, um, almost setting marriage up as like a "well, if you have to" sort of thing. Um, your thoughts? Yeah, I mean, I think if you if you look at Paul here, uh, that's that's really what he's saying. He said a, a single person has the time to devote. Uh, to serving uh, the Lord in special ways that a married person doesn't. That's mm-hmm. the logic that he uses. And, uh, you know, he says a married person has to deal with other concerns, specifically like another person living with you that has their own demands and desires, uh, and you get in arguments, and uh, just life uh, with children uh, can sometimes be difficult. And so he's very practically touching on these things. Um, now, I think that 
No matter where you are, sometimes if you're married, you're saying, man, I kind of wish I could be single so that I could serve the Lord more. Yeah. I think we've all felt that from time to time, no matter how much we love being married. And I know that single folks sometimes are like, well, man, that sounds great, Paul, but I'd really like to have a spouse so Mm -hmm. I can enjoy life uh, with somebody that I traffic with. And so I think it's important to recognize in some ways the grass is always greener on the other side and you want to be careful when you talk about these things. I think the church a lot of times, for instance, we're about to have this weekend camp Mm -hmm. that's happening and um, it's my proclivity to want to call it come to our family weekend camp. Mm -hmm. But the minute you do that is the minute that you're ostracizing or excluding implicitly maybe a large majority of Christ followers that call your church home that aren't a part of a, an immediate family right now. Yeah. And so um, the idea that the church being a large family really helps uh, in understanding some of this um, and putting the, the pieces of the puzzle together. Um, but it's funny. I used to joke with Rachel uh, when I didn't want to date her in high school. I would use First Corinthians chapter seven as an excuse, uh, saying that I think the Lord's called me to be single so that I could serve Him. But what I really wanted to do was just not take her on another date. Oh dear! Um, now the tables <laughs> totally turned down the road, and I can share that story at another time. All that to say. I used this as a weapon (laughs) to get what I wanted. Basically, I wanted to be single at the time. And so (laughs) I said, I think the Lord has given me the gift of singleness. And in some ways, that's what Paul is mentioning here is this is a gift. Not everyone has it. But if if you do happen to have it, um, uh, don't don't look at it uh, with uh, – don't despise it. Mm -hmm. Um, It's okay to embrace it. Um, And yeah. It, it's a, it's just a hard it's a hard topic. It is. Um, so it is. Yeah, uh, uh, yeah. But I think I think those are all good thoughts there. Um, you know, then in chapter eight, Paul starts talking about food sacrifice to idols, which is very very culturally and historically niche, um, but has come to be the uh, I, I don't know proof text for people trying to say that you should or you shouldn't drink alcohol. You should or you shouldn't watch R-rated movies. You should or you shouldn't drive uh, non-fuel efficient vehicles. Like anything that someone doesn't like you doing, they will use First Corinthians eight to say that you shouldn't do it. Um, wh- what are your thoughts uh, on on this one? Because it it seems to me to be one of those pretty niche things that we could draw a few. Uh, limited applications from, um, but probably much more narrow in scope than people often use. Yeah. The issue here being food offered to idols. And like I mentioned earlier, you've got Jewish Christians and also Greek Christians that call uh, the Corinthian church home. And so uh, food that was offered to idols would have made the Jewish Christians very uh, wary, um, would have given them some heartburn, so Mm -hmm. to speak. Uh, Whereas the Gentile Christians that have been Hellenized, uh, might have said, bon appetit, go mm-hmm. ahead and eat. Um, it's it's offered um, to idols, but we don't believe in idols. Uh, and so we can give thanks uh, to the Lord for this meat and enjoy it. But what Paul says is that the predominant um, controlling factor in all of our decisions when it comes to these tertiary issues is love. Um, and how am I loving and even giving up my rights and privileges um, and uh, sacrificing, in a sense, for the love of another. 
And so you get uh, instances right now where I think this comes into play specifically with the COVID pandemic. I mean, when we talk about masks, for instance, mm-hmm. um, what is the loving thing to do? Well, you could make the argument that the loving thing to do is to lay down your rights um, and to say, I'm going to wear a mask uh, so that this other person can come and worship. Um, or, uh, for instance, alcohol is the issue that you bring up. A lot of folks that grew up in the Southeast, like I did, uh, if you saw the minister drinking in a restaurant, that was grounds for him being fired. Wow. Uh, because that was seen culturally as something that a Christian was not supposed to do. Mm. Just like culturally, they would have seen food sacrificed to idols as something a Christian was not supposed to partake in. But we know that that wasn't the case. Paul actually calls the the stronger brother the one who is able to eat food offered to idols with thankfulness to the Lord in his heart. And so um, in this instance, uh, um, for, for instance, I think alcohol is fine. Mm-hmm. I enjoy alcohol in moderation. Um, but if I'm ever around what Paul might call a weaker brother who has a problem with alcohol, uh, either morally uh, or physically because yeah. they're dependent or they struggle with it, uh, out of love, it would not be right for me to flaunt my freedom uh, and to partake in alcohol, but to lay that freedom down, to lay that right down, uh, to give up what I want mm-hmm. so that this brother or sister might be loved and not um, not incited to sin mm-hmm. um, so that I'm not putting a stumbling block in front of them, as Paul would say in First Corinthians, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. The mask thing probably doesn't fit very well with this particular issue, actually, the more I'm thinking about it. Um, but more things like alcohol, R-rated movies, mm-hmm. um, issues of Christian liberty. Yeah. Yeah. That, that liberty, that, that's a, a great word to, to use when, uh, when talking about these things. I like the way how you discussed it, how it always comes from a sense of love and humility and deference to another person. Where I've seen this used is usually around a bunch of people who take alcohol, for example, none of whom are mentally or physically um, consumed by the substance or tempted to overindulgence, but for some reason have this weird thing that uh, none of us can drink because lest we cause one of us to stumble and so it it it's has ceased to be a uh, liberty versus humility thing and and become more of a um, what I would call just a very prideful thing, people taking pride in their temperance. Yeah, sure. Um, and I think it, I mean, golly, we haven't really read much of First Corinthians. It might be worth doing that because uh, I know some folks might be listening without a Bible in front of them. But at the end of First Corinthians chapter eight, Paul says this uh, when he talks about food offered to idols. He, he says, um, let me start here. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? And so by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died, thus sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food or alcohol, or R-rated movies, or you fill in the blank, Mm -hmm. makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Uh, And so that's Paul talking about Christian liberty with regard to eating meat uh, offered or sacrificed to idols, which we could 
you know, like also I said. requires you to know your brother, right? It's not sure. just it's yeah. not just some random guy walking by. And it also requires you sometimes, potentially, if it's a self righteous brother mm-hmm. and not simply just a weak one, uh, what does it look like to press forward with your rights? Um, so that, you know, it could go both ways. Yeah. Is it a weak brother because they just don't have the knowledge yet and they're not sure that that's okay? Or is it a self-righteous Pharisee saying Mm. you shouldn't do this? And that person might require a different response than the weak brother or sister. Right. Um, where you might need to press in a little bit and not necessarily flaunt it, but I'm not going to allow this self-righteous person to take my freedom away. Mm -hmm. But I am going to submit my freedoms for the love of another. Right. Uh, if it's, you know. Yeah. Um, this definitely calls for a lot of wisdom. And I think people just just will pull this out so flippantly, you know, as sure. though it were very cut and dry. But I think a lot of wisdom wisdom needs to be employed here. Is there any kind of neutral standard when you're reading scripture to determine if something is a... Um, a principle that persists through the ages or is culturally unique? Ooh, man, that's a big question. Um, Because we're going to head coverings next. Well, are we going to talk about that tonight? (laughs) I don't know. It's it's been a long time. That's a big question. We might jump in with that next week because I think that this leads to that discussion. But the things that I would just tease with is you have got to understand Scripture and the original audience Mm -hmm. Who was Paul writing to? The more culture you know, uh, the better. Um, and then you take those principles and you apply them to your specific situations. Uh, and so we're really having a conversation. Uh, it's not as wooden as we think it is or as linear. Mm-hmm. Um, we have to understand the culture. We've got to understand the authorial intent towards that culture. Uh, we've got to rely on the Spirit to give us wisdom and how to apply that to our present-day circumstances. And so, for instance, we don't deal with food offered to idols today. Yeah. And so we've got to use our sanctified common sense to understand what was going on in Corinth at this time and then to draw out applications or implications for us as 21st century Christians living in America today. How does this apply to our lives? And so um, it's a lot bigger question and a lot harder to um, kind of come to a conclusion of than just, you know, reading your Bible and taking it literally every single time. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, that's right. So we'll, we'll talk a little bit more next week about, um, you know, culturally unique things versus principles that persist. Uh, we'll finish up first Corinthians next week. We can probably get into second Corinthians as well. Folks, we appreciate you tuning in. If you've got questions about what you're reading in the New Testament, we'd love to hear those and and take a stab, maybe offer a response to those as we are going through the New Testament as part of this series. So you can send those questions. You can email them to questions at trinitygracesa.org, or you can text those questions to the number you'll find on the back of your Sunday morning bulletin. But until next time, we'll see you later.